Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Meacham, the Archive and Special Collections Manager for the Yale Film Study Center. Remember the title. Um, And for uh, probably the fourth, fifth, maybe sixth time, Brian is a uh, multiple repeat guest, but we haven't had you on in a couple months. Yeah, it's been uh, a while. Now that the academic year has started again, and you all are in full swing at the Whitney Humanities Center, uh, playing movies from the Yale Film Archive, it's great to have you back to, to talk about the latest series. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Okay, so 2018 marks the centenary of the birth of Ingmar Bergman, the landmark uh, Swedish filmmaker who, who kind of revolutionized and popularized uh, European art house cinema in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, made, I think IMDb listed him as directing something like 70 films between the mid-1940s and the early 2000s. And the uh, Yale Film Study Center has embarked upon uh, a pretty ambitious uh, series of showing eight of his films, primarily from the 1950s, but a few from the early to mid-1960s as well, uh, to celebrate uh, the Ingmar Bergman century. So, Brian, uh, why don't you, could you tell me a bit about why you all are embarking on this series now and um, give, me, give me a bit of background on it? Sure. Well, it's uh, you know it's something that we're constantly trying to do to try to to add to uh, the collection, the film collection at the Film Study Center, uh, by acquiring prints of important, good, useful, worthwhile films. These are films that we think are going to screen for years and years to come. They are films that really uh, you know add heft to our collection. And we have a growing collection of 35mm prints, but it's, it's still fairly small in the grand scheme of things. And so when we have the opportunity to, to add films such as these, each one of these films is really you know, a landmark uh, in its own right. When we have the chance to add uh, a whole group of films like this to our collection, it's something that we really uh, you know, want to capitalize on and we really want to you know, spend, spend a lot of effort doing. And that's really what we've done over the last two years. It's the the project to acquire these these films began in November of uh, 2016, and like many acquisition opportunities, it was sort of a, a bit of an opportunity, uh, you know, of chance. It's it sort of uh, a conversation uh, began between me and a colleague who works at the Swedish Film Institute, who who mentioned that in case. Uh, our archive or, or other archives that were uh, members of the International Federation of Film Archives, which we have now been since uh, 2014, uh, would like to celebrate the centenary of Ingmar Bergman uh, coming up in two years, uh, that uh, the Swedish Film Institute was open to striking new 35mm prints from their preservation elements uh, of those films. Now, you know, we don't need to digress into, you know, the, the state of photochemical film production in 2016, but it's certainly a rarity to be able to get that opportunity. Obviously, film used to be the, uh, you know, 100% of the way that, that, that these kind of uh, kinds of motion pictures were seen uh, around the world. You know, in theaters, it was all film. In the last 10 years, it's become almost all digital. And so the opportunity to, to still make uh, 35-millimeter film prints in this day and age was one that we really wanted to seize upon. Did the Yale Film Study Center-Swedish Film Institute relationship, is that a unique one, or is the Swedish Film Institute uh, kind of sending out new prints throughout the, throughout the globe to um, celebrate? I know of some other archives that um, have taken them up. I know the Academy Film Archive and the British Film Institute have 
taken them up on this offer. But this is the sort of thing that archives tend to do for one another if the capability and the budget and other things are there. We at the Yale Film Study Center just really haven't been at that level quite yet until now where we are in that world, a, a part of the uh, International Federation of Film Archives, and having the budgetary and gift support to, to be able to, to do a project like this. So I'm hoping that this is the first of many such projects where we are able to work with archives, either within the United States or especially around the world, to, to sort of bulk up our, our international cinema collection. Now, considering how we've had you on the show before to talk about the, the nitty-gritty of film preservation in the context of Home Movie Day, I'm going to ask you to put on your film geek hat just for a second, maybe technical or, geek hat. Or have to take or it maybe, off. Or maybe just don't take it off <laughs> yeah, for this exactly. question. Because when you say uh, strike new film prints from right. preservation elements that the Swedish Film Institute has, uh, what what does that mean? How, how does sure. that kind of technically come about and then end up at the the doorstep of the Yale Film Study Center. Yeah, 10 o'clock this morning. Um, yeah, so so uh, there was one photochemical lab left in Sweden uh, maybe about uh, six or eight years ago, and the Swedish Film Institute, uh, rather than, than see that lab go under, uh, actually acquired it. And so now the Swedish Film Institute, like the Library of Congress, like the BFI, like a couple of other national uh, archives, has its own film lab in-house. And so... Uh, they are able to make new film prints and preserve by making new film negatives, uh, other material in their collection. And they are happy to do this. Obviously, the bulk of the work is done internally for their own institution, but they are also happy to do it for outside institutions. So what this means is uh, they have, I believe, the entire Ingmar Bergman collection, and they have preserved the Ingmar, the films of Ingmar Bergman. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they've preserved all of them. That's sort of their their primary. That was one of, one of their first mandates, I, I'm sure. And so they have uh, negative materials, which they can use to print new prints. And those negatives are derived from, after a few generations, the original camera negatives that Ingmar Bergman shot these films on. So these are the closest you can get to the originals. We're not making new prints from the originals, but those originals are kind of quarantined there. They've been preserved and they're not going to be touched again. And it would be too dangerous to, to make new prints from those originals. But we're making prints that are two, two generations removed from the original. So they look amazing. Um, and so that means that that the Swedish Film Institute made a new uh, a new film print for us, and then uh, the subtitling uh, odyssey began, which is the other half of the equation. Obviously, these films are all in Swedish. The original dialogue is in Swedish, and they need to be subtitled. And so subtitles exist in various forms. We would get uh, a Word document. We would get a scanned PDF of of a typewritten, uh, you know, just a sort of a sheet that that gave up a, a vague plot outline you could find subtitles on various dvds in various levels of quality with uh, some had a more en- english english bent and some had a more american english some were antiquated some left out anything possibly uh licentious and lascivious mm-hmm. and those you know those bits had to be put back in so that that was a long process and that took actually the bulk of the time the making of the prints was was rather painless and 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 quick you know i'm almost I'm kind of surprised to hear uh, how many different uh, variations there there were, or maybe are, of subtitles for these films. Because Ingmar Bergman, I think for a couple decades now, has been you know one of the most respected filmmakers in the world. And a lot of the movies that uh, you'll be playing as part of the series have been put out by, I think, the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of them have. Yep. Uh, which tends to put together pretty definitive like yes. packages. Do, uh, did you find that you couldn't just kind of watch the, the versions that the Criterion Collection put out and kind of copy the 
subtitles word for word there mm. needed to be some kind of updating we could yes uh, and and we did uh, gain permission from the criterion collection to access a couple of their subtitle files for a couple of particular films but subtitling you know it's a uh, it's it's work that someone has done that is credited to them that is you know it's it's it, there's a i think there's a bit of a gray area it's not really a copyrighted part of the film itself but it is its own work which i felt I didn't feel comfortable just swiping. Uh, you know, I wasn't about to just sort of take these subtitles from another institution's work and and just sort of, sort of throw them on our own film. So the subtitles that we used were mostly derived from material that the Swedish Film Institute sent us and then massaged in a way. So, uh, you know, these sort of archaic turns of phrase were kind of removed and, and updated in some way. So audiences weren't sort of distracted and brought out of the experience by trying to figure out, oh, when they say hire, they meant rent. When when you said uh, cottage, you meant cabin, you know, things like that, uh, that, that might not uh, be as clear to an audience today. And what's the lab in the U.S. or elsewhere that you use to, I guess, etch the laser subtitles right. onto well, the film? Well, it's a two-part Two, it's two parts work. So we get the subtitles from from the source, and then uh, we send them to uh, a wonderful man named Jerry Rudis, who uh, works out of New York, who spots the subtitles. Um, and if anybody attended the Art of Subtitling show that we did earlier this year, uh, he was half of the presentation and and talked about sort of behind the scenes how he lines up subtitles so they don't appear too early, they don't stay on too late how many characters the human eye and brain can sort of absorb in a certain period of time. So the subtitles, are, so you're not rushing through them or there's not more material uh, on screen than, than you can comprehend. And so he lays them out to, down to the actual frame, uh, how long they will, will sit on screen. And he and I go back and forth. I mean, we have, you know, so many emails back and forth of, of you know, version four, version five of all these subtitle sheets where we're sort of, trying to figure out you know how many phrases can we get in in this in this section and and should we cut this short should this go onto the next screen that sort of thing and so once those those files are all prepared then it gets sent to cinema arts which is in pennsylvania and it's the last lab in the united states that can laser etch subtitles onto a print and so it's really uh it's a you know not a dying art because the, the, i think they're getting quite a, a good bit of business these days because they're the only ones who can do it but it's certainly we felt like this was maybe one of the last opportunities we'd really have to do this kind of work and uh and so they uh line each reel up on a machine and a, a laser passes over each individual frame and etches the subtitle mm -hmm. on each frame one at a time and after all of that behind-the-scenes work, we in New Haven are lucky enough to be able to watch these films uh, presented on new prints at the Whitney Humanities Center. So without guess, further ado, let's start talking about the movies themselves. So sure. there are eight uh, new film prints that you've struck. Yep. Uh, the first two screenings in the series took place earlier in September. You played uh, Summer with Monica and Sawdust and Tinsel to 1953. Uh, film starred Harriet Anderson, but can you tell me about the other six movies in the series? And we're talking on the day that one of the screenings will be taking place. So maybe just lay out the schedule for us. Sure. So tonight, uh, Thursday, the 11th of October at seven o'clock, we are beginning with The Seventh Seal, which for some people may be the only Bergman film they know, or maybe it, it's probably Bergman's best known, most iconic film. Uh, the scene of the knight playing a chess with death on the beach is perhaps the most iconic image in Bergman's films and, and maybe even in all of sort of art cinema. Um, so The Seventh Seal uh, at night at 7 o'clock and then followed by The Magician, another film starring Max von Sydow, a very different role, 
a very different type of film, but uh, uh, made just a year later in 1958. That will be screening at 9 p.m. Um, these screenings are once a month, so we move to, uh, to November, November 5th, showing sort of two kind of deeply psychological uh, films. Uh, some would say possibly two of his darker films, um, but rewarding uh, in, in so many ways beyond that kind of first impression. Seven o'clock will be Through a Glass Darkly, uh, also starring Harriet Anderson. Uh, and nine o'clock will be Persona, uh, which is another one of Bergman's kind of iconic films and the latest film in his filmography uh, of these eight films in the series. And then finally on Thursday, December 6th, we'll finish with two uh, somewhat lighter perhaps happier films for the dark winter night uh seven o'clock smiles of a summer night and nine o'clock wild strawberries another one of bergman's best known films and made the same year as the seventh seal which is screening tonight 1957 now we'll make sure to uh, put information about all the screenings on deepfocusradio.com so you can find out when and where and all these screenings are free and open to the public so you won't have to to open up your wallet to check out all of these classic Bergman films. And I want to say that you're uh, listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Brian Meacham, the Archive and Special Collections Manager at the Yale Film Study Center, about a new Ingmar Bergman retrospective that the Film Study Center is is holding uh, to commemorate the Swedish director's uh, 100th, the 100th anniversary of his birth. Uh, Brian, you mentioned that the how, how many uh, 35 millimeter prints roughly does the film archive currently have you said you have a, a growing collection but it's not the biggest collection yeah. do you know well i'd say out of about uh six thousand items in our collection we we have probably about 935 millimeter prints so and did you have any of these movies already uh so you're just getting updated versions we had one 35 millimeter print of the magician actually the the film that's screening tonight and uh it's in pretty rough shape it has over a hundred splices and I would say it'd be an interesting comparison to, to show a reel of each and to see the subtitling. Uh, it's, a, it's a vintage print, and I would bet that the subtitles are, are probably uh, not up to snuff, certainly not as complete and as coherent as the ones that we've made. Um, but yeah, it's really been um, you know taking advantage of the ability to add prints that films that people know and films that, that have been borrowed for screenings at Yale in the past, but films that we've never really owned. And these films now will be able to screen for courses. They'll be able to screen for the public, you know, every every few years, hopefully for many years into the future. We've really thought of this kind of as an investment. We've we've uh, acquired these films both through money from our own budget, but also through a generous gift from the family of the late Gene Siskel, who's Yale class of 67, who uh, counted Bergman among one of his favorite filmmakers. And his widow and and their children were generous enough to to give us a gift that enabled the purchase of four out of the eight of these film prints and the subtitling work on those as well. So we're really thankful to them. So besides it being the 100th anniversary and a nice round number to celebrate uh, someone at, why why do you think it's worth revisiting these movies in 2018? Uh, we've spoken uh, kind of broadly about Ingmar Bergman being one of the most celebrated international filmmakers in the history of the medium, but uh, maybe let's pick a few examples of movies that are playing in this series, or just tell me a bit about you know what what Bergman means to you. Why do you think he's someone worth watching now? Well, it's interesting thinking about that because you know I I first saw Bergman films in college, you know, twenty plus years ago uh, on VHS and uh, kind of probably fairly poor transfers. 
And I was very, I was intrigued by them. I was, I was really, I think, impressed by the kind of gamut that he ran from something like Smiles of a Summer Night, a kind of, you know, 19th century romantic comedy of, uh, you know, a matchmaking comedy sort of thing, all the way to Persona, uh, which, you know, was one of the sort of more dark and disturbing films I think I saw in my 20s. And, uh, and you know, I, I hadn't watched many of his films in the intervening years. And then coming upon this project, especially doing the subtitle work, I've watched these films four and five times each and, you know, stopped them, rewound them, you know, played sections again. And I just, I walk away, I mean, first of all, I love seeing them over and over again. I'm going to be at the screening tonight and can't wait to watch these films again, even though I've seen each of them probably five times in the last three months. But I just, I can't help but be impressed by the the sort of ability that he had to kind of encapsulate so many different things in one in one film. Something like uh, Seventh Seal is, you know, it, 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 it asks the fundamental questions about you know, is there any meaning to life? Is there a God? Why Why are these horrible things happening? But then there are also kind of, there are jokes, there's humor, there's a kind of lust for life, There, there there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, they just are, are able to sort of encapsulate so many uh, kind of emotions that feel really real, especially now even, you know, 60 plus years later, these films don't feel dated at all. I mean, this film is about the, you know, the dark ages. So it was already dated in the 50s, but still it doesn't feel as though, uh, you know, he's kind of holding back or or, or or that, you know, this film could have been made better, you know, kind of later on, uh, you know, in, in the history of cinema. It's uh, it's really, they're, they're, they define the, the, the term timeless, I think. Let's let's uh, spend a second more on The Seventh Seal because I recently rewatched uh, mo- most of the movies in this series and Seventh Seal was definitely the first Ingmar Bergman movie I'd seen, but probably back in, in high school and to me, it represented just the uh, impossibly adult and cultured nature of like mid-century international art house cinema. Something that was incredibly ambitious, maybe pretentious, black and white. Definitely a historical timepiece set in, uh, I think, 14th century or 15th century Sweden, uh, as a knight is returning from the cru- ten years in the Crusades uh, to find his home country ravaged by the plague. Uh, and so th- he, it's it's kind of daunting material to go back to and. Uh, as I was listening to um, one of his biographer, uh, Peter Cowie, who's a British film historian, uh, do, I think, his commentary track on on the Criterion version of The Seventh Seal. He's talking about how people went up to uh, Bergman throughout his working life from the 40s through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and said, you know, why do you return again and again to the exact same subjects, to death, to the you know, questioning the existence of God uh, to uh, a complete kind of alienation from fellow man and concern about the meaning of existence. Uh, and he, his response, according to Cowie, was that he would recall uh, the, what the early 20th century Polish uh, pianist Chopin would say when people said, why do you keep uh, playing and writing nocturnes over and over and over again? You know, why don't you give us an opera, give us a symphony, give us something else? And Chopin said, my kingdom is a small one but there I am king. <laughs> and I think that, I think that yep. fits uh, remarkably well for Berkman and this, this incredibly ambitious, sometimes overwhelming, but really um, 
you know, really moving, uh, grappling with death and the meaning of life. I mean, how often do you see a movie these days that directly asks the question, what is the meaning of life and does God exist? And then actually, can, you know, convince you to follow along with the character through their own kind of spiritual journey. Maybe for, I don't know if you saw First Reformed, the mm-hmm. Paul Schrader, Ethan Hawke movie. That, I think that, you know, is, uh, you know, pays a lot of homage to, to Bergman's, um, his, his big thinking in what, what he can accomplish through film. But, yeah, there's there's so much humor, even even right. in the uh, even in the most dour subject matters. Maybe Persona, maybe the one that I think yeah. elicits the fewest laughs in its yes. interrogation of the I'm not even, uh, an identity crisis for for to, uh, a nurse and an actress who yeah. are kind of stuck together in a, a coastal resort. But there is there's like the whole span of human emotion in mm-hmm. Bergman films, which is a remarkable thing to behold. And I think it's, there's such coherence across pictures yeah. uh, that you get why like early sixties, you know, French and American film critics loved him because they could pick him apart right. as an auteur. And I love, you know, having seen these films all together, I love the sort of, you know, the troop of people that he, he works with and just seeing these actors, you know, in, in both leading roles and in small roles throughout these films the same people coming back and and just you know you see how versatile they are and they can they can be you know overbearing and out of touch uh, in one film and they can be you know the the warm you know best friend in the in the next film and i mean just the versatility of these fine fine actors and actresses is going to put you on the spot of yeah. the four or five so there probably yeah. maybe five that i saw recurring actors and actresses yeah. in like every single one of these movies bb yeah. anderson harriet anderson yeah. max outsido Gunnar is my favorite. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. Uh, what, so why, <laughs> yeah. why? Why was he I just, someone that? And he's really in every single. He movie really is. That, uh, just Bergman seeing made. him. In, my, my my favorite two performances are in the Seventh Seal, where he's his sort of you know the the knight's kind of side he's the squire. Yeah, yeah, he's the squire who goes along with him, and and you know they they're not best friends. They 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 talk more to other people, I think, than they really do to one another. But they but he has such kind of. A, a dry kind of take on on everything that's going on and then to see him in through a glass darkly when he's the the husband and father um that you know that it, it's just a very very different character and 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 he max von Sydow is in that as well and 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 in kind of interrogates him and puts him on the spot and to see uh to see the way the kind of his 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 vision of his life kind of falls apart as he is questioned about it. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing performance and, uh, he, and he's just phenomenal in so many of these films. The seventh seal does seem like the most striking departure for Gunnar Bjornstrand mm-hmm. of any of the movies in this series. And that he tends to play someone who is much more polished and put together and, uh, res- in either the comedies or the dramas, if you think of, uh, the um, the magician or uh, mm. persona smiles of a summer night uh, even wild strawberries he's someone who kind of presents on the surface level as someone who has the wealth the good looks yep. the steely intelligence mm-hmm. uh, and he has that in the seventh seal as well except this is a time period when no one looks particularly polished <laughs> right he he right. is as ravaged and bitter as everyone else but he's the kind of earthy Sancho Panza yeah. to, to the he, idealist of I have to say, I don't even know the first time I saw the film that I, even in this round of viewing, that I connected him. I didn't, I almost didn't recognize him because he's very physically different, you know, with a, with a sort of, you know, unshaven and kind of wearing this kind of, you know, uh, burlap shirt, you know, he just looks very different from the refined, uh, 
you know, theatrical entertainer, you know, from uh, from later on. And, and it's just, he's, it's, it's, he's very, he's able to transform throughout so many of these roles. And of course, it's not just uh, Van Sado and Bjornstrand who show up again and again, but there are a few actresses who mm-hmm. Bergman returned to uh, frequently at this time period and was often in sexual relationships with uh, and behind behind the scenes. But Harriet Anderson being in those first two, Summer with Monica and Sadas and Tinsel, and also through Glass Darkly, and then B.B. Anderson kind of taking over as the, the female lead in almost all of his movies in the late 50s and mid-60s. And as, well, as two... Uh, um, straight white guys it is to throw that i i do want to grapple a little bit with bergman's representation of like female sexual desire in these movies because i don't think it's something that you necessarily would expect from you know someone who is uh you know he a a male swedish uh kind of renowned art house filmmaker from the 1950s he's someone who spent a lot of time uh and his movies really dedicate a lot of attention to uh, to female perspective and especially to female kind of sexual desire persona maybe being the the pinnacle of that but i think um summer with monica as a um, kind of predecessor to some of the more like insouciant uh female characters in the french new wave i feel like there's a lot of like jules and jim in that character uh of uh, a young kind of teenage uh swedish woman who uh you know smokes a scar, wears a beret, kind of does what she wants when she wants. Do you, do you feel like Bergman's, like, I don't know, 60 years later, uh, as, you know, the Me Too movement is maybe the defining, uh, or one of the defining uh, representation fights in Hollywood right now, do you feel like Bergman's representation of women is, is fair, is equitable, is, is intelligent? Uh, I think it was probably... Uh you know, sort of in its own way, kind of unexpected or groundbreaking as you, or, or, or at least something that you might not have assumed, uh, someone from that milieu would have, would have, would have done. I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an academic. I don't know how well it's really aged, um, these, these portrayals, but, but it's certainly in the November double feature through a glass darkly and persona you will see some things that I don't think, you know, that, that, that are portrayed with a kind of realism and a sensitivity uh, to the characters that I, that I don't know would have been given that kind of space in that, in that period of time in the early 1960s it, by certainly, you know, mainstream Hollywood films by, and, and possibly, you know, films from, from other places. But yeah, I, certainly it's, it's something that, you know, is, is, kind of unexpected i think and uh and you know i don't know what the current take uh, what what a feminist take on bergman's films of the late 1950s would be but it's certainly um you know these are real these are real characters they're not they're not cardboard cutouts yeah i i i think particularly as the movies kind of progress chronologically towards persona uh the the female the characters become uh I don't know. All all the more I mean, there's a lot of uh just recklessness in especially the female characters played by Harriet Anderson in the early fifties uh, films that is exciting to watch, but seems to be I mean, Bergman is also kind of infamously someone who married you know, married like five or six times and had like nine kids. I mean, he was kind of all over the place in the nineteen fifties and sixties and there seems to be from, you know, again, a non not not an expert perspective, but um a someone kind of ogling and 
trying to, to create this independent, exciting female character, um, but still told from the perspective of a you know, very male gaze, and then getting into the 60s where Persona is so rooted in the head of these two female characters. For what it's worth, that's just my take on, yeah. on how, how things progress. And you, you mentioned that you, um, you rewatched these movies uh, multiple times to prepare for the series. Or besides Seventh Seal, were there any others that jumped out at you as um, particularly noteworthy or impactful for you this time around or any new insights on well uh, it was something that we haven't talked about but i know that that you and i talked about in preparation for this is the way these films look i mean they're all black and white in this in this series obviously he worked for many more years and made many fantastic color films but these are kind of the films that people think of and with sven nickfist and and uh, gunner fisher that his cinematographers throughout this this period these are some of the most beautifully shot films you can imagine. I mean, they're just so gorgeous. And the way that he plays with perspective, with light, with, as you mentioned, with reflections and mirrors, especially in Sawdust and Tinsel, is just breathtaking. Just even if we didn't have the subtitles, even if you if you didn't speak Swedish, these are a visual feast. I mean, they're just so beautifully composed. And the black and white uh, you know, cinematography just allows for so many uh, you know, sort of the, the, the way he, he, he composes interiors with all these different levels and layers and the way he composes exteriors with, you know, giant skies and, uh, you know, a figure, a, a line of silhouettes uh, of figures along the, along the horizon on the bottom. I mean, there, I, there are countless scenes I can think of, but, but Sawdust and Tinsel really impressed me as one I had seen and sort of thought, okay, this is kind of melodramatic and kind of goofy. But then really seeing this beautiful print of it and seeing the, the layers and the, 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 the way the film looked was just really amazing. And as someone who is so fascinated with uh, our perception of the world and the relationship between perception and how things actually exist, he, Bergman tends to embed these stories within stories in almost all of his films. In Sawdust and Tinsel, we spoke about the, kind of the, this uh, story told towards the beginning about a, uh, a woman, part of a circus troupe, who uh, kind of runs off to this uh, rocky coastal area where she performs in front of this group of like very rowdy sailors, and then uh, her clown husband comes and saves her. But maybe Wild Strawberries may be the best example mm. of these uh, these dream sequences interpolated in this otherwise uh, kind of day in the life for an accomplished medical professor on his way to receive an honorary degree, uh, and this otherwise you know very kind of realistic telling of this man's life um broken up by by reflections broken up by that type of careful framing that you mentioned all of a sudden in these dream sequences we have um another kind of rem- remarkably uh kind of visual take on on what it's like to not quite feel right in in your body i think that as victor uh Sorstrom, uh kind of deals with the blinding hot light and heat in that first sequence where he's walking through a desolate downtown and then sees this this horse-drawn carriage come by and a coffin come pouring out right. I mean, there's uh it's it's not just in the right it's not it's not just in the story the storytelling on the page uh, that bergman succeeds at getting us to um feel that separation between life as we see it and life as it actually is but also what gunner fisher and yeah. sven nykvist do it's pretty and, remarkable. And those those two sequences that you point out are are wonderful little sort of short silent films. You know, there's no dialogue almost, and they he even sort of shot and processed them so they have this very contrasty look. They look like they were films made in say the 1920s as opposed to the 1950s and they're they are put into these films very consciously as sort of 
these you know almost like if you if your nightmare was a silent film you know like it's sort of a flashback nightmare from a from an from another time and they they look kind of ageless in a weird way and it's all the uh, all the sweeter knowing that the lead actor in wild strawberries is this founding director of swedish cinema and someone that bergman revered uh and to see him uh kind of putting that man in the middle of a short silent film mm-hmm. uh is a pretty remarkable thing to behold um Anything else about this series that you wanted to, to highlight? Well, maybe we'll go through the, uh, tonight's screenings one more time just to make sure that people have the, the time and date and location. But sure. yeah, I mean, Bergman, if you haven't heard of Bergman or if you haven't seen anything by him, to see to see his films on on film, on a big screen, is a pretty remarkable opportunity. Yeah, I, I hope people are able to take advantage of it. This is, this is the kind of series that has been done at Film Forum and the BFI and, you know, the... German Cinematheque, and of course in Sweden, everyone has been celebrating Bergman this year, and I think it's a really great opportunity for uh, a city like New Haven that that might not have had this series come through for us to be able to present this small selection of films. It's not by any means a complete retrospective, but it's it, it'll get you pretty pretty far if you haven't seen Bergman before um, to see these uh, eight films or at least the six that are that are remaining. So we're beginning tonight at seven o'clock with the Seventh Seal. And at nine o'clock with the magician, and that is uh, a, a great double bill. And where is that? It's at the Whitney Humanities Center, fifty-three Wall Street, uh, in New Haven. And uh, the screenings are free, and we're expecting a, a good crowd tonight. And we have an introduction from uh, Professor Martin Hagland, uh, who is uh, Swedish, and we'll have the the Swedish perspective on these films. So we're really excited to to have him. Well, thank you so much for putting the series together, for bringing Bergman to New Haven on this centenary, and for coming on the show to talk about it, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. All right. And we'll, again, we'll post uh, links to all of the screenings that we spoke about today at deepfocusradio.com, uh, where you can find over three years of conversations about movies in New Haven. Uh, and we'll be back next week for another show.